Money FM 89.3. Best of the evening runway. Regional Roundup. All right, let's take a look at headlines from the Southeast Asian region. I'm Elliot Danker together with Timothy Goyer on the evening runway. Uh, Tim, Malaysia had a major cabinet reshuffle yesterday. Mm-hmm. Um, it was big news there yesterday. Of course, also we're going to look at the Rohingya refugee issue with the refugees mm-hmm. now landing in Aceh in Indonesia. Oh, interesting. Well, on the line with us is Nicholas Fang, Managing Director, Black Dot and Director for Security and Global Affairs, Singapore Institute of International Affairs. Nicholas, good afternoon afternoon. How are you? Good afternoon, guys. Always great to speak to you. Thank you for taking the time, my friend. Let's uh, start off with that Malaysia cabinet reshuffle that happened on December the 12th. Anything surprise you there? Well, I think in general, if you were talking about whether there was a surprise in the reshuffle itself, I don't think so. I think it's the first reshuffle that uh, Prime Minister Anwar has done since uh, he came into power. And uh, if you look at the kind of challenges that the country has been facing that we have also spoken about in previous days and weeks earlier, uh, the economic challenges, the challenges within society, and indeed the political landscape that Mr. Anwar has to navigate. I don't think it's entirely a surprise to people who watch Malaysian politics. And we and these rumours of this reshuffle have been around for a while already. So I wouldn't say the reshuffle itself was a surprise. Now, some observers are pointing to some of the appointments or lack of appointments or lack of changes as being a bit curious. In fact, there are a few ministers who have come under criticism for their performance in recent months. Uh, you know, I think experts in Malaysia have pointed to Minister of Education Adlina Sidek, as well as Economic Affairs Minister Rafizi Ramli, as uh, those who have been you know, a bit under fire. So they, they keep their portfolios, and, and I think a lot of people are keeping their eye on how they will perform now that they are going to carry on, you know, at least for the foreseeable future. And if Mr. Anwar's hopes are realized, this should be the status quo until the next general election. Uh, but yeah, there, there, there were obviously some, some appointments inside there that were interesting. And is there anything that stood up for you guys? Well, uh, Nick, how are you reading uh, into it, though, in terms of which direction the prime minister is taking uh, his government? Right. So obviously, I think one of the key things people are looking at uh, is the appointment of a second finance minister. We, we know that Mr. Anwar himself holds the uh, finance minister portfolio. But now there is an interesting choice who has come in to be the second finance minister. And that's something that I think a few people have already picked up on. There were interesting shifts in the foreign ministry, uh, the defense ministry, and the return of some interesting personalities as well. So Mm. I would say it's a good mix as a whole uh, in terms of bringing in expertise and capabilities that would be needed to help uh, steady the country's economic shift Mm -hmm. uh, and hopefully also put uh, Mr. Anwar in in a good position to stay politically sound, you know, until the next uh, election, if that works out as well. Um, But if you were to zoom into the second finance minister, I think the appointment of the Employees Provident Fund uh, Chief, yeah. Amir yeah. Hamza Azizan. Yeah. Uh, some people were interested about that. Yeah. Mr. Amir himself is, is a political newcomer, right? He, mm. this, he has zero political experience. He's been primarily in the private sector. He's worked at a national energy company, Tanaka Nacional, Petronas, and at Shell as well. And, uh, you know, Mr. Anwar himself has sort of hinted as much, but observers also point out that 
the position of finance minister or second finance minister very critical. The finance ministry is a very important ministry for the government and for the country right now. Yeah. So if he had Mr. Anwar had appointed an existing member of a political party, then he's going to come under pressure from his unity government partners, right? They'll mm. say, why not my party? Why that party? And mm. all of them would be unhappy. So mm. putting a, a technocrat and a well-respected technocrat at that, um, means he could potentially work with all parties without any sort of political baggage. So, you know, I think that's a good sign. And because he's he's got a strong corporate background, the signal is that, you know, the government is aiming to boost investments and to to really get the economy going again. So I think that's a positive sign. So from that social interaction or or that social point of view, and I say this because this is on the back of an election that saw younger Malaysian voters, they would take to Mr. Amir Hamza's appointment as something that could potentially be beneficial for the people, sort of like a people's finance minister. What's your thought on that opinion? Earlier, I think you hit the nail on the head when it comes to this particular point, and I wanted originally to make this point as well. Uh, when you think about ministers, they yeah. obviously have dual roles yeah. or, or potentially even more than just two key roles. Of course, there's the operational running of the ministry and policies, uh, making sure that the right decisions are taken, the big ideas are in place. But then they also have to roll, out, roll it out on the ground and make sure that people benefit from, from all the different policies. But at the same time, they also have a political role. They have a political status within their party. And there's also the need for politicians, and ministers are politicians, to have popularity on the ground, to be able to carry the ground and to do well in elections so that you know the government of the day stays in power in, in the shape and form that, that it is in currently. So when you highlight the sort of personalities, the background, the yeah. image, yeah, image, somebody yeah. like a Mr. Amir, yeah. for sure, you know, to, to younger Malaysians, to see somebody who's been successful in the corporate world, who doesn't necessarily come in with political baggage, mm. I think that's a very positive uh, sign for somebody like that to become, maybe if not the face of the finance ministry, definitely a senior leader within the ministry as well. Okay. So it's a bit of a win-win for okay. everyone, you know, that he comes in, in that role. All right, Nick, let's move on to the refugee situation, the Rohingya refugee situation in Aceh. It used to be that people there were welcoming of these people who need temporary homes. So what happened? Why are they not so welcoming now? Well, I think first, the simple short answer of it would be that it's an issue of numbers. Mm. The UN has data that shows more than 1,500 Rohingya refugees landed in Indonesia since November. President Joko Widodo has attributed this to human trafficking as one of the reasons why the numbers are so high. But it's not you know, unimaginable that if you have a few handful or tens of people coming and they need help, that the populations who are there to receive them would be a bit more welcoming compared to, you know, 1,500 of them coming in 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 just uh, the past month or so. Um, 300 arriving just last weekend. So it is is very, very tricky. And if you know Aceh province in Indonesia, there are still a large number of poor people who are living there, who are native to the province. And it's also an ultra-conservative province. So whatever sympathy that people might have to the refugees, you know, we've again heard the stories, they come in dilapidated boats, they are, you know, emaciated, they have no food, no water, and some of them die at sea. That sympathy tends to erode when you see large numbers coming in. They're obviously taking up local resources, they are requiring help, support, shelter, uh, and this tends to be funded through taxpayers' monies, which 
you know, if you were a native of Aceh, you would say, why isn't this being spent on us? Mm-hmm. And then some of the residents there have said that, you know, for the refugees, if they escape the camps or the shelters where they're in, or maybe escape is the wrong word, but when they come out, they, they'll do, they will, they'll fall into bad habits, uh, drugs, and that sort of problem. And when you're in, a, in an ultra-conservative province like Aceh, not hard to see that this would rile up the local population as well. So, you know, it's not, it, of course, sympathy and welcoming arms would be a very sort of positive way to imagine a response to these refugees. But if you look on the perspective of the local population, it is really, really tough. There are many residents who are already saying that there are too many of these refugees in Aceh. And uh, if they keep coming at any scale and numbers, um, it's worth all bearing in mind that they usually see a surge in, in around November and April, largely because the seas are calmer. So when these refugees put to sea, you know, from the camps that they're in in Bangladesh and so on and so forth, trying to get to Thailand, Malaysia and Indonesia, we will typically see larger numbers in, in November and April. So potentially this will slow down. If it is an issue of human trafficking, yeah. as uh, President Joko Widodo has, has sort of attributed the problem to, then we need to keep an eye on whether the numbers taper off, stabilize or, or increase You know, going forward. Nicholas, final question, and I'm going to pull out the friend card for this because it's going to put you on the spot. Um, <laughs> is it going to be out of Manchester? No, 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 no. We're not going to talk about that. Uh, <laughs> could the sentiment that you've just described have an effect on the elections that are happening in Indonesia? I think so, for sure. You know, when you see uh, social problems uh, that arise and uh, widespread social sentiment uh, that, that affects a large number of people, this is something that no government can afford to ignore. And as we enter, you know, what we sort of describe as the silly season of, of, of political elections, we're going to see the elections in February 14th, uh, yep. 2024 in Indonesia. You can be sure that, you know, the government of the day and all the different politicians uh, will be looking to take positions on this to sort of define, you know, where they stand, right? And mm. in, in such cases, you can pretty much expect them to fall on the side of, of popular opinion. Yeah. Uh, it would be t- politically very, very challenging for them to say, oh, we should welcome more refugees regardless of what Indonesian citizens are saying or feeling and demonstrating as well. And we are seeing a lot of this sentiment now coming out on social media. Mm. And as you know, if, if any sort of global crisis or, or situation really get amplified on social media. So I think we have to, we, we can definitely factor in concerns or aspirations when it comes to the upcoming elections uh, to feed into the way the government and politicians react to this current crisis. Fortunately, that means that the refugees are potentially going to be stuck in the middle mm. in, uh, in a very, very difficult position. But that's something that they've been facing for many years already. All right. We've been speaking with Nicholas Fung, Managing Director, Black Dot, and Director for Security and Global Affairs, Singapore Institute of International Affairs. Thank you so much for your time. Take care and have a great Wednesday evening. Take care, guys. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at audio.sg or download the audio app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O, audio at the App Store and Google Play.